In the fall of 2015, a man named Chris Lawrence, some of you may have heard from, of him, was living in Colorado and noticed a strange pain in his back. It was, a, in his own words, he says, it started as a noticeable tightness and within weeks evolved to a throbbing and stabbing pain. He said, my, my body was definitely talking. I just wasn't want to lis- wanting to listen. Sounds like any men you know. <laughs> yep, exactly. He goes on. He says, uh, I was 37 years old. Now, that's so young. You can't accomplish anything at 37. I don't know why he would say that. I was 37 years old, a husband and new father, and I worked for an outdoor program in Colorado. I was the guy who everyone considered healthy. I ate well, rarely got sick, and I was in good shape. He sounds like me. Uh, in fa- <laughs> just That's a joke. Anyway, in fact, whenever I entered races, obviously not true for me, triathlons or other endurance competitions, I often won my age group and occasionally even a race. But the unexplained back pain sidelined me, and soon I couldn't even perform normal life tasks like working at a desk or holding my infant daughter. When I sought medical professionals about my pain, they told me it was just a muscle sprain. Give it time and it'll heal. But over the next few months, the pain kept getting worse and my back started spasming. Eventually, my pain grew so bad that I needed narcotic-level painkillers just to make it through each day. When I finally insisted on an MRI, they discovered the cause of my pain. Stage four bile duct cancer. Among cancers, this is a silent killer. By the time you discover you have it, especially once it is stage four, there is little anyone can do for you. Because they had discovered my cancer so late, my doctor gave me about a year or so to live. He told me chemo might prolong my life a little while, But even the effort spent fighting would be miserable and futile. I was devastated, and so was my wife. The circumstances upended everything in my life, including my faith. I remember praying to God, You know, God, you really are asking a lot out of me. Behind that statement was a lot of confusion and even anger. At this point, I wasn't hearing anything hopeful from the medical world or from God. It seemed I was about to lose everything that was important to me. My family, my belief that God is good, and even my own life. Maybe you can relate to Chris. Have circumstances in your life ever brought you to a point of questioning Is it worth it? Is it worth it to continue on? And not everybody has that kind of unique story of unexplained, unexpected cancer at a young age. But we all have factors in life that lead us to feel hopeless. There's isolation and separation and alienation in relationships. Has a relationship ever felt like it cut the legs out from underneath you and you thought, there's no hope in life. What can I do? 
Maybe it's continued failure or weaknesses. Maybe you would not want anyone else in this room to know it, but you have weaknesses or failures in your life that make you feel like you're worse than everyone else around you. Why is it you? Why is it this? Why can't I like others? Maybe it's unexpected, unexpected circumstances like a job loss or a sudden illness. There's multiple people in our church family and connected with our church family that have been dealt devastating diagnoses, a diagnosis of cancer and, um, and other things. Maybe it's just the general brokenness of the world or devastating events. Maybe it's the news. Maybe you read the news or watch the news and, and it leaves you feeling hopeless. You think uh, we're making one step forward and three steps back. Maybe you've lived long enough that you've witnessed multiple generations and even though you don't want to say it and you really don't want to think it, there's a part of you that feels like, Man, I hope Jesus is coming back because it is just getting worse and worse and worse. It seems now even the church is headed down the wrong path. It seems the words that Paul gave that in that time people will not want to hear sound teaching and kids won't respect their parents and people are just going to want to go their own way. It's going to seem like the church looks no different morally than the world and that leads you to a sense of hopelessness. Has your hope been tested this year? You know, what's worse than all these factors is you and I have an enemy, whether we like it or not. And that enemy would like nothing more than to leave you feeling hopeless. He just wants you to feel like, just quit. He can't make you quit, but he'll try to persuade you to quit. Or if you're like me, he'll try to make you feel, you've already failed. Just give up. There's no way. There's no way for any good to come out of this. There's no way for it to get better. There's no way for resolve. And hope is, is just hanging on by a thread for you. We desperately need hope. And that's what makes the Christmas story so wonderful every year. You know, part of the message of the birth of Jesus is hope. There's hope. God gave a promise in the very beginning. After Adam and Eve sinned, in, in Genesis 3.15, he gave them a promise. They didn't understand this promise. Actually, people didn't understand this for a long time. It required Jesus to come and explain things and the Holy Spirit to illuminate minds for the, for the people of God to finally get it. There, there's going to come a seed from the woman, and she's going to defeat, or he is going to defeat the enemy. There, there was this glimmer of hope based on a promise, and that's what Christmas is. Hope is one of the messages of Christmas. Listen to this reminder that Paul gave the Christians in Rome about the prophecy of Jesus' coming. In Romans 15, and again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will appear. It's real interesting, he says, the root of Jesse, which the root shouldn't come after the, the, it's already there, but Jesus was before and after. And the root of Jesse, Jesse is King David's father. 
So there had been these hopes, these promises given. I'm going to send you a king, a ruler. I'm going to send you a deliverer, a savior. I'm going to send you someone who's better than the prophet Moses. And this one, his throne is going to last forever. He's going to really win. He's going to make it. It's never going to end. I'm going to send you this promised one. The root of Jesse will appear. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles. Now, Isaiah was written around 700 BC. This is 700 years before Jesus. The Gentiles were the non-churchy people. They were the non-religious people. They were just anybody that was not Jewish. And of course, the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that was the one and only true God. And he says, this one that's going to come from the root of Jesse, he's going to rule the Gentiles. Already in that statement, there's hope. You don't even have to be Jewish to get saved when this one comes. The Gentiles will hope in him. The non-Jews will have a hope that you Jews have had since the beginning. They will have a hope. This means the whole world has a hope that's coming, and they will hope in him. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you believe, so that you may overflow with hope. How many of you are overflowing with hope today? You're just overflowing. You don't just have hope. You have too much hope. You have so much hope, it's spilling out. Makes me think of my kids when they... uh, when, when we tell them, you can go get your water now. And now even our, our five-year-olds get their own water. We have a fridge where, you know, it shoots water out of the front. And I'm telling you, I've probably said it one million times. Don't fill that cup up too much. You're going to spill it. It's going to overflow. You're not going to drink all of it. Just get like this much. Okay, Dad. Okay, Dad. All over the floor. And then Courtney's got to clean it up later. I mean, yeah. Can you believe it? so that you may overflow with hope. The hope that Jesus brings is meant to make you overflow with hope. Now, the question you should be asking is, am I overflowing? Because if I'm not, that means I'm not receiving a promise that God already gave 2,000 years ago. God meant for you to overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So the birth and mission of Jesus was meant to bring all people overflowing hope. Jesus is our reason for hope. And Paul is a perfect example of a person who chose to place his hope in God and keep it there. Paul's the one that's been writing about this hope that's in the living God, the hope that's in God. Even the Gentiles are going to hope in God. He writes about this other times. I can't show you all the times. It's multiple times in the New Testament. He writes about hope. He would be a perfect example to look at. Does this fallible man, what, what does his life look like? The one who's proclaiming and preaching that each of us should have overflowing hope. Let's use Paul as an example uh, of hope. In 1 Timothy, this is how Paul began his letter to his son in the faith. He loved Timothy so much. I can resonate with this feeling. He wanted Timothy... Timothy was going to be this young preacher at Ephesus, one of the biggest churches in that area of the time. And he just loved Timothy, and he just poured into Timothy and, and, and knew that God had called him to be a preacher. He's, he writes this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our, our hope. Christ Jesus is our hope. He placed his hope 
in Jesus. What else is cool is, this is a letter from one author. Now, other letters that Paul wrote, he wrote with Silas and Timothy, or he wrote with others, but not 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy was a personal letter from one person to another person. But catch that verse where he says, our hope. In the, in the very first sentence of his letter, in his greeting, which wasn't meant to teach anything, this is just, hey, this is who's writing, our hope. He's reminding Timothy, don't forget, Timothy, Jesus is not just my hope, he's meant to be your hope. He's our hope. Jesus was meant to be the focus and source of our hope, too, the church. So let's take a look at how hope made a difference in Paul's life. How did hope transform Paul's life? You know, looking at the word hope, we, and the verb, the noun form and the verb form, you can spend time studying the word and look at all the ways that hope is found. We'll, we'll talk about two different ways that you can find hope and, and really choose to place hope in God. But the church pretty much knows, okay, where should we put our hope, right? Sunday school, you guys know, where should we put our hope? We should be Jesus. Now, do we always do that? No. How come? We get distracted, we get scared, there's fears, there's other things going on. Why do we not place our hope in God? Well, one of the ways that we learn about hope is through Paul's life. In his last letter that he wrote in 2 Timothy, he writes to Timothy. This is when he's, he's not on his deathbed, but he knows the end is near. He knows he's about, he's about to be in heaven. He knows that his life is about to end. And he writes this in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. He's not talking about catching a train. He says, what he's meaning is, hey, the end of my life is near. I'm about to leave this planet, and the time for my departure is close. Then he, he gives three statements. He says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. This is what he says at the end of his life. This man who preached, put your hope in God, put your hope in God, put your hope in God, put your hope in God. This is what he can say at the end of his life. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I kept the faith. There is reserved for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. You know, I can't prove it. This is just a, a thought, a wonder. In verse 8, do you guys remember in the book of Acts, where this, this, we call him the martyr, Stephen the martyr, where this guy named Stephen was stoned to death and murdered because he was preaching to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah and the only way to be made right with God. And in particular, you guys killed him and even following, trying to follow the law of Moses is not going to make you righteous and you guys killed the Messiah. Well, they hated that. They, they didn't really like that. So they stoned Stephen to death. Do you know the Greek word for crown is Stephen? That's where the name Stephen comes from. Do you know which Pharisee was standing and holding the cloaks when Stephen was martyred there in Acts? Saul. Paul. I don't know this because I just don't know it. I'm going to have to ask him when I get there. Or I guess hopefully when he gets here, that would be better. But uh, I'll have to ask him. I wonder if when Paul wrote this, at the end of his life, looking back 
Every time he said the word Stephen, which means the name Stephen or the word crown, every time he wrote it, I wonder if he thought about his brother Stephen that he was going to meet one day and he was the one that murdered him. I wonder if he thought about that. There's going to be a reward on that day, a crown of righteousness that the righteous judge is going to give me. And not just to me, everyone, to everyone that believes. This isn't just for me. This isn't because I'm super special. This righteousness is given to anybody and everybody that just places their faith in Jesus. That if you would just turn from your sins and say, you know what? That's the, the, the wages of sin is death. I don't want my sin anymore. I don't want to disobey God anymore. I don't want to live without God anymore. If, if anybody would just repent, turn from their sins, turning toward Jesus and saying, you're who I trust in. You're the only one that can make me right before God. That's righteousness. You're the only one that can forgive me of my sins. So when Paul was writing this, you can hear the hope that he had. My hope is in Jesus. I know he's coming back. I know he's going to be there on, quote, that day. I wonder if when he thought of that day, because he became good friends with Luke, so Paul and Luke would be talking all the time. He knows about this story where Stephen looks up and he sees Jesus standing ready to welcome him in. That was Stephen's day. I wonder if Paul thought about his day, even though he didn't deserve it. God was going to welcome him in because he turned from his sins and placed his faith in Jesus. The only way to be made right with God in a way that any of you sitting in this room, anybody hearing online, you could be made right with God if you would just turn from your sins and place your trust in Jesus. He came to earth 2,000 years ago. A man that claimed to be God was murdered and proved he was God by rising from the dead and showing everybody, I am who I said I was, and I am who I am. Jesus was the Son of God. He was the Lamb that was slain to take away the sins of the whole world, not just the Jews, but the hope of the Gentiles as well. That includes everyone else. Jesus is the hope. So I'll get back to the sermon. So, he says, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith. Just like Paul, if we choose to place our trust, our hope, I mean, our hope in Jesus, and we keep it there, he's who we're choosing to trust in, we, like Paul, won't give in to sin. We won't give in. That's what he's saying by, I have fought the fight. What fight is he talking about? Is he talking about a physical fight? Is he talking about some boxing match? No. He's talking about the fight against your sin, against your flesh, against your nature, against that sinful nature that says, don't trust in God. Go your own way. He says, I have fought the good fight. I fought against that. I did not give in to temptation. I did not give in to my fleshly nature. Now, he's not saying I never gave in in the sense of I never sinned. He did sin. What he's saying is, I fought the rest of my life because my hope was in Christ. I fought against my sinful nature. I fought the good fight. He didn't give in to sin. He fought against his nature. He pursued holiness. Keeping our hope in Jesus means not giving in to sin 
Instead, it means training in godliness, which he writes about in 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 7. But I have nothing to do, but, and he's telling Timothy, you know, his young preacher, predecessor in the making, or not predecessor, the other word. Anyway, his young guy that's coming up after him. He tells him, but have nothing to do with pointless and silly myths. Listen, if you're going to be a preacher, you're going to get a lot of people asking you a bunch of questions, wanting to talk about a bunch of stuff. You're going to get exhausted. You're not going to be able to answer everybody, and you don't need to be at every town hall meeting. Trust me, don't waste your time on pointless and silly myths. There's actually some arguments you should not be a part of. Why? Because you've got a calling. You've got a calling from God, to, and your calling does not involve answering every question. Rather, train yourself in godliness. Train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit. Although when he says limited benefit, you've got to realize 2,000 years ago, everyone was paleo and no GMOs, and they walked everywhere and that kind of stuff. So maybe today, this verse, you have to take it in context. But the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. That phrase, it holds promise, that speaks of hope. Hope is looking forward to something happening that's based on a promise. That's what you're hoping for. I, this is going to happen. This is where my hope is. So when he says there to hold on to the promise, he's speaking of a hope. Since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance. For this reason, we labor and strive. Why? What, what is he, for this reason, what? What reason? Why? For this reason, we labor and strive because. He tells you the why behind the labor and striving, the fighting the good fight. Why? Because we have put our, our hope in the living God. We're, we're, we're training in godliness. We're, we're fighting the good fight. We're fighting against the sinful nature. We are, we are walking with the Lord. Why? Because our hope is in him. When you place your hope in Jesus, that is fuel to say, you know what? If my hope's in him, why give in to this earthly stuff? It's not going to last. You can't choose how hopeful you feel, but hope is a choice in the sense of you choose where you place your hope. And Paul's saying, we place our hope in the living God. And that is what fuels us to strive and labor in godliness. We put our hope in the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe, command and teach these things. So choosing to place your hope in God requires training yourself in godliness. It, uh, it reminds me of Rocky IV. Um, you know, I wasn't always saved. And back in the day, I used to watch all kinds of movies. Anyway, Rocky IV. And if you haven't seen it yet, don't blame me. You've had a lot of time to figure this out. Uh, in Rocky IV, Rocky Balboa, he's the main character. He ends up fighting the undisputed, undefeated Soviet Union uh, boxer, Ivan Drago. I wish I could say his name the right way. And uh, the reason why he fights him is because Drago, and if you haven't seen it, you had time, he kills Apollo Creed. They have a fight, and he punches him, and he ends up dying. And Rocky's distraught, and he's like, no, I have to go fight him. I have to do this. He killed my best friend. I got to do this. So he goes against the undefeated Ivan Drago. 
In order to fight him, he has an argument with his wife, and he says, I've got to go train. His wife doesn't like it. You don't have to fight. I do have to fight. And it's a great scene. Anyway, he's like, I got to go. He's like, Adrian, no, you tell the truth. He loves her, but he's like, I got to go. So he flies to the Soviet Union. When he gets there, Apollo Creed's trainer named Duke, I think his name was, this is what he says to Rocky in this scene. He's talking to Rocky. It's got the music, you know. It's the real intense moment. Rocky realizes I'm about to face this impossible fight with this impossible boxer that just kills everyone that he fights. He just demolishes everyone. Duke looks at Rocky and he says, Apollo was like my son. I rate... Yeah, I can't do the voice. I probably shouldn't try. <clears throat> Apollo was like my son. I rate no. Apollo was like my son. I raised him. And when he died, a part of me died too. But now you're the one. You're the one that's going to keep his spirit alive. You're the one that's got to make sure that he didn't die for nothing. Now you're going to have to go through torment, worse than any nightmare you ever dreamed. But in the end, I know you'll be the one standing. In that moment, there's a turning point in the movie, in the story. It's, it's, not, it doesn't, it's, not, it's like the rising action before the climax. Rocky realizes, if I'm going to face this fight, I have to train like I've never trained before. I, I've got to train myself in a way that it could kill me. Because when I get in the ring with this guy, he could kill me. You know what? The Christian life is spiritual warfare. And we have to train in godliness because every day we are going to have to battle incredible odds, incredible odds. With man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. You are in a battle for godliness. You're in a battle for holiness. And if you're going to face it, you're going to have to train. And the only way that the training is going to make sense to you is if you've put your hope in God. If he's the reason why you train, you can make it. We don't give in, we don't give in to sin when our hope is in God. Number two, we not only won't give in, we won't give out. We won't give out before it's over. If you're not from the South, <laughs> to give out means to be exhausted and to, and to fail. It's like, it's the picture of a marathon runner. Have you ever seen those video clips of the marathon runner right at the very end? There's a few clips that are really good. One was at the, actually both were at the Olympics. Was when it, one was in Cozumel, Mexico, and this guy that was just, he, everyone just knew he was going to win first. He was in Britain's team, and he's running, and I mean the last couple hundred yards. I mean, like, he has been, I, I forget what, how long he had been running, but he starts running. He starts getting disoriented, disoriented and he, couldn't, he can't find his way, and the commentator's like, oh, no, what's going on? He, he doesn't know which direction he's walking in, and the marathon runner's all stumbling, and he's, he's walking, and you hear them talking, and this particular YouTube click, clip, they had, like, the Sarah McLaughlin music in the background, and it gets all super emotional, and it's like, and all of a sudden, his brother, another racer, comes up behind and grabs him and, and tries to move him toward the finish line because he just can't make it on his own. He just can't do it. He's exhausted. He's fatigued. He, he can't even see. He can't walk. His brother ends up pushing him right across the, the, the line, and he just collapses. I mean, he has zero energy left. In this life, you are going to face difficult circumstances where you're going to feel like, I can't keep going. And you have no energy left. 
you have nothing left within you, do you know the only source of your power is God? The Holy Spirit that empowers you and gifts you to keep going, and not only that, but His Word. God's Word gives you that strength and endurance that you need so you won't give out. He says, I've finished the race, meaning I've done what God's called me to do and I did not stop. I had enough energy to keep going. You know, Paul never collapsed of exhaustion because he continued to draw his strength from God, the Spirit of God, and also the Word of God. You you have to get into the Word of God, or really, you should say, you have to get the Word of God in you if you're going to have what it takes to continue this race. Because it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And I've never run a marathon, but just watching it on TV, it sounds exhausting. It just looks horrible. You need energy to be able to keep going. In Romans 15.4, Paul writes about this energy, this, this hope and endurance that he has. He says, for whatever was written in the past was written for our instruction. He's talking about the Bible. He's talking about Scripture so that we may have hope. One of the uh, benefits, one of the blessings of God's word is that it gives you hope. It gives you hope. Now, you have to place your hope in God. The way that it fuels you up is through his word. His word gives you hope. You have to be in God's word. So that we may have hope through endurance and through the encouragement from the scriptures. We need God's word to encourage us to keep going so that we don't give out. Our endurance and encouragement comes from the scriptures. It also comes from the spirit of God that empowers you to keep going. There are some moments, if you read David's Psalms, you know, King David, he wrote 73 of the 150 Psalms. You read some of his his Psalms and you just know what part of his life where he wrote this, what he's talking about. And there are certain moments in his life where he's like, everyone's against me. There's no one for me. I've got nothing going. I'm weak. I feel guilty. I've got no claim to God rescuing me. However, my hope is in God alone. Our hope has to be in God alone. And because of God's word, Paul pursued his calling in life to reach the Gentiles. We don't give out because we know the calling God has given us. We're empowered and strengthened through the scriptures. We're empowered and strengthened through God's spirit. We're empowered and we do what God has called us to do. An example of this is from Peter in 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3 verse 15, he writes as a familiar passage, but in your hearts regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at any time to give a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the the hope that is in you. Do you know our hope in God draws people to the good news? It draws people to the gospel. When you have hope, especially when you have overflowing hope, notice in this verse he says, when people ask you. This means you're not manufacturing it, you're not forcing it, you're not, this is not evangelism, you know, track drive-bys where you, where you give people the gospel, just giving it to everyone. This is people are going to ask you why? Because of the intelligence that's in your mind? Because of the charisma you have? Because of the articulation that you have with explaining things? No. They're going to ask you for a defense. 
Why do you have the hope that you have? They're attracted to hope. One thing is true in every culture at every time. Every human being has an appetite for hope. We all want hope. And hope that's deferred makes the heart sick. You know that proverb? When you don't get what you hope for, man, it bugs you out. I'll give you an example. Um, this weekend, Courtney went on a Christian, a women's Christian getaway. It's like a mom getaway. And so she was going to be gone Friday and Saturday, which means I had to like make cereal and cook peanut butter and jelly. I had to do so much stuff. I had to microwave stuff. I had to make frozen dinners. I, had to, I just had to do things I never should have to do, right? So I had to do so much. Uh, but she was gone. And I've got another friend that because he's just so generous and kind to me, I don't deserve. He's just such a good friend to me. As a Christmas gift, he wanted to take me and the kids to Dave and Buster's. Now, I know, and I've known, that we were going to Dave and Buster's for weeks. Guess when I told my kids we were going to Dave and Buster's? The, they, they, uh, my friend got to my house, and my kids are like, what's Mr. Blah, blah, blah doing here? What's this happening? I was like, well, we're going to Dave and Buster's. And, uh, and the reason why I don't tell you all the time when we're going places is because, you know, when you tell an adult something's going to happen, and then it's deferred, and it doesn't happen. Adults inside are like babies, but outside are like, okay, that's life. When you tell a kid, we're going to go to an arcade and you're going to have the best time of your life, and then something happens, like someone gets sick and you can't go to the best fun you've ever had in your life. Kid, my kids aren't like, I understand, Dad. It's totally understandable. And it's not your fault. You know what? You're good to us. And we love you. And we're, we're going to help you clean the house for Mom when she gets back because this is not your fault. And you know what? We're already blessed. We're too blessed. We don't need Dave and Busters. My kids don't say that quote verbatim. They don't say that exactly. Because... When you hope in something and it doesn't happen, what happens? You're just, you're discouraged. You start to feel hopelessness. When you feel hopeless, you just want to give up. Or if you're like a kid, you just want to yell and blame someone else. So hope draws people in because the absence of hope is something we are all afraid of and resistant to even non-believers, even non-religious people, even atheists. No one likes to feel like there's no hope. Everyone is hungry for hope. And our hope draws people in. So, if we place our hope in God, we won't give in, meaning we won't give in to sin, we'll fight the good fight. We won't give out, we will finish the race, we won't give out before we finish what God has called us to do. And number three, we won't give up. We won't give up on God. When we place our hope in God, that means we are going to trust him no matter what to the very end. Paul said, I have kept the faith. There were many times when Paul could have said, you know what? My life before Jesus was way better than my life after Jesus. Many times, right? Caleb would have never interviewed Paul. Never. He... No one wanted to hear Paul's story. When he started writing about his story, I was stoned. So many times, I can't even remember. Not the Colorado version. Like, I used thrown rocks. Stoned so many times. I was beaten with rods three times. That had to have been horrible. I was beaten countless times. His life shipwrecked. His life was miserable after getting saved. 
but his hope was in God. And he says, I have kept the faith. I never, ever decided I'm not going to trust Jesus. And that's what he wanted to pass on to Timothy, and that's what God wanted us to see. It's not just about Paul and Timothy. Their story is meant for us. It's meant for the church. Look what Paul was saying. Look what God is saying through Paul. You know what his hope was? That you would have faith. That you would keep the faith. Don't lose trust in Jesus. Even when circumstances are incredibly hard and difficult and you feel like, you know what, all hope is lost. It's not. All hope can never be lost if your hope is found in Jesus because Jesus is never lost. Jesus came to save the lost. And if your hope is in him, you'll never give up. You'll never give up faith in God. He says, I have kept the faith. In Hebrews 10, verse 23, the author said, let us hold on to the confession of our hope. We have this confession, this belief, this statement, this, this sermon. Every Christian has a sermon. I know some of you probably think that's not true. You do. You have a sermon. You have a confession of hope. It's particularly on hope. Your hope is in God, in Jesus. That Jesus died on a cross, that he rose from the dead, and that he's coming back to make a new heavens and new earth, to bring you with him, to set things right, to give you really what he deserves. That's our hope as believers. And the Hebrew writer says, we have to hold on to hope. You have to grip hope and hold on to it like you don't want to let go. Let us not lose our confession of hope. It's, it's particularly of hope. Our hope is in Jesus without wavering since he who promised is faithful. Why is our hope in him? Because he's faithful. Hope in God requires faith in God. Everything starts with that. And you will never have true saving faith as James 2 would describe it. You will never have true saving faith until you see God through the lens of the, the love that he showed through his son Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only way for you to see who God really is and his love for you. And, and according to John in 1 John, you can never love God until you receive his love for you first. Why? Because there is no such, you can't. You were not built to love him until you see his love for you first. You, you can't love something that you have no personal relationship with. We love God because he first loved us. And Paul says, I kept the faith. I kept trusting him. The Hebrew writer says, let us hold on. Let us hold firmly to this confession of hope. Since he who promised is faithful. And Christmas really brings this to the forefront. Christmas season is upon us. We've got a lot of activities, festivities going on. This Christmas, what is your hope in? Where have you put your hope? I'll tell you a story of a man that I, I really like. He's a preacher. I, I like a few preachers, and he's one of them. He tells the story. I'll try to do it justice. This is not my story. I'm saying this secondhand from him. He talks about one Christmas season years ago when he was just a poor little preacher, and his water heater went out, and... And his dishwasher, or, or not dishwasher, it was his laundry, one of his washer or dryer went out, and he had to spend extra money. And like me, he doesn't believe in using credit cards if you can't pay it off at the end of the month. He doesn't believe in debt. So he was in his devotional one time, and he's praying to God, and he's like, God, 
and he felt like God was speaking to his heart, he tells it this way. I'm not saying this is, my, this is not my story, and I'm not saying all this is true, but this is how he describes it. He says, I felt like God was telling me, go ahead, say it. He says, okay, I'll say it. I'm mad at you. And then God says, why are you mad at me? Well, all these things are falling through. I, we don't have any money for Christmas. The kids aren't going to have Christmas. And honestly, it just feels like you don't care because you're not providing. He says, okay. Why can't you have Christmas? Well, every year we get gifts for the kids. They love it. He's got young kids. He's like, and now we're not going to have Christmas. He says, as soon as he said those words, he felt a You ever say something and the oh, I wish I could take that back, you know? <laughs> yeah, that happens to me only once a week uh, in public and then about 10 times a week in private. Anyway, he said, we can't have Christmas. And he knew that was wrong. And he's telling the story like God is speaking to him. And he, he tells it this way where the Holy Spirit is influencing him and saying, okay, so let me get this straight. You can't celebrate the birth of my son Jesus who sacrificed and came to earth to die for you while you were a sinner. You didn't deserve it. Rose from the dead. You can't celebrate his birth because you don't have money? <laughs> and then he said, well, I'm not saying that now. <laughs> you know, you change your mind when you're praying to God and you realize, you know, the Spirit convicts you. He realized his hope was in money. Money is so easy to hope in, isn't it? Do you remember before the pandemic when it was easier to have hope in money? And now with that inflation, you have less hope, more worries. Does anybody else feel that? 1 Timothy 6, 17, instruct those who are rich, Americans are rich, instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Don't set your hope on anything else other than God. When he's your hope, you can't lose hope because you can't lose God. I began with the story of Chris Lawrence. I didn't finish it. I want to finish his story, the, the man with stage four cancer in, in Colorado. And I'll pick up where I left off. He wrote, it seemed I was about to lose everything that was important to me, my family, my belief that God is good, and even my own life. But even as I wrestled with my new reality, I clung to hope through my relationship with God. I remember reading a psalm about a man who was stuck in a miry pit or a bog. I couldn't think of a better description of what I was going through with cancer. As I began to read more in the Bible about hope, every reference shouted out at me. I especially loved Psalm 71:14. As for me, I will always have hope. I gained a deeper understanding of the hope that God provides. How God gives light and good to people, even in the most trying situations. Situations like being in the pit of cancer. And then he writes this, which I, this is my favorite part of his journaling. And if he didn't free me from mine, at least he would make good of it somehow. I resolve to follow God no matter what happens. For me, 
Hope enabled me to start making plans for the future again, instead of being stuck in despair and hopelessness. And when I went to future scans and appointments, I still dealt with fear, but I felt buoyed by a new sense of hope and peace. Through a series of events, I met with a renowned cancer research doctor who ran a genomic sequencing test on me. He came into the room with a thick British accent and white wispy hair and said, I know how to treat this. I remember thinking, wait, what? This is untreatable. And then he explained how his treatment plan would target the cause of my stage four cancer. I was skeptical, but my family and I started to feel some medical hope. It became clear he wasn't just blowing smoke. Within weeks, the pain in my back nearly disappeared, and a few months later, my scan started showing clear. While I would never have chosen this journey, and many days I wish I could return to my life before stage four cancer, I wouldn't trade how my relationship with God has grown. This experience profoundly changed my outlook about the power of God's hope, not just for people facing cancer, but for people in every situation. In whatever difficulties we face, with God there is always hope. There is always a way. I once thought I would lose all that is dear to me, but instead God gave me a new life. Even better than that, he gave me hope. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God of hope. Our prayer to you is that you would make us a people of overflowing hope, so much so that people would ask us for the hope that's within us, that they would want to know why we have so much hope so that we can share your good news with them, good news that is for all people, that if anyone turns from their sins and turns to you, placing their faith in you, they will be saved. They will be forgiven. Make us a people of hope so that we can be bright shining lights in this community. We love you, Lord. You are our hope. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.